This is Voices of COVID-19. I'm Brian Lucas. Thanks for joining us. The coronavirus pandemic is a stark reminder of something that we never should have forgotten in the first place. We live in a global community. COVID-19 is a shared experience that demonstrates the actions that we take individually can and do have consequences around the world. As we in the United States work on social distancing and flattening the curve, other countries are fighting the same battle. And while our cases and the death toll have been rising, unfortunately, that experience is also being shared by other nations as well. For a little bit of a global perspective on this, we're going to look at France, which has seen more than 130,000 cases so far, resulting in more than 14,000 deaths. There was a time when the graphs were showing France on a similar exponential curve to the U.S. as both countries were coming to grips with the pandemic. But recently, France's curve has been flattening as their policy of confinement has taken effect. Still, their fight, just like that in the U.S., is far from over. Joining me to give perspective about how this pandemic is playing out in France and to talk about her own experience with COVID-19 is Celica Tellier. Celica and I were classmates at Princeton University, so we are old friends. After college, she moved to Paris, where she's been ever since, getting married and raising her two children. Celica is also the co-founder and COO of Choose My Company, an organization that collects and analyzes feedback about companies to help them foster positive work environments and attract and retain employees. So it's my pleasure to welcome Celica. Thank you so much for agreeing to speak with me today. My pleasure, Brian. Can you, first of all, just kind of set the scene for me in France? What is life like and what is the atmosphere like right now? Well, it's an absolutely beautiful day here in France. The sun is out, uh, spring is coming, the trees are flowering, the birds are chirping, and at the same time, it's very quiet. I think that the word of the day is is somber. The country has really taken the measure of, of what's going on and how important it is. The measures of confinement were announced on the 13th of March and took effect uh, at midnight on the 17th of March. We're confined to our homes. We can go out for one hour a day for different reasons. And uh, when the confinement was announced, everyone had 48 hours to go to the place where they were going to spend the next 45 days and with the people that they were going to spend it with. The measures that, they ta- that they've taken here, it took a few days for them to, to really be observed. But when you go out, you have a paper, the police control. They've given out several hundred thousand ordinances and tickets for people who have violated the confinement rules. And every night on the news, like in other countries, there's a national briefing on where things are and reminders about the confinement rules, as well as the measures you should be taking to protect yourself and your loved ones. I didn't realize that it was so prescriptive, this confinement in terms of an hour a day. There must be a lot of I would imagine, honor system with that, but also a lot of enforcement out. How does that work? Here it's been enforced. It was very interesting to see but it, how, how things evolved when they first started talking about the COVID-19 pandemic. Initially, there were guidelines. And when the government saw that that was just not going to be enough, they took more structured steps. As far as the way people are behaving, it's not totally an honor system. And at the same time, it's not cameras like you have in China or some of the things that you see coming out in Russia in terms of controlling people's movements. 
When you leave the house, you have a form that you print out where you put your name and some other data that corresponds to some piece of ID that you'd be carrying with you. You put your address. You're allowed to go one kilometer in a one kilometer radius around your home. You have to say what time you left. So there's a time that you write on your sheet. And then there are five different reasons that you can go out, everything from medical emergencies to everyday shopping. When you go out, there are policemen and they can ask you for your paper. And if you don't have your paper or you've gone over time or you do not correspond to one of the reasons it's on the paper, then they give you a ticket. And the first ticket is 135 euros. It seems to be very effective, the street I live on and my one kilometer radius is extremely quiet. There are no cars in the streets. There are very few people in the streets. People need to go out one by one. And people seem to really be respecting the rules at this stage. But I think everyone's taken the measure of how serious this is. They want their loved ones to be well and they want it to be over as quickly as possible. What is the reaction when this kind of oversight gets announced? There are a lot of places, as you know, in the, in the United States where this would not go over well. Is that something that is a little more accepted in France? The funny thing about it is that French people tend to be very rebellious if there's a rule. It it was meant to be broken. This said, uh, it is a country where you do have to carry around ID with you. And in certain cases, you can be requested to produce it. So I think that there's part of it that's par for the course. We're also in a country with a socialized economy. And so government intervention in certain parts of your life is accepted or even welcomed. There tends to be less of an outcry or not an outcry in terms of a refusal to accept that a government can restrict your movements. I think people here have understood why it's important. What people here expect is transparency and information, and they want to know the truth. (laughs) They want to know how bad it is. They want to know uh, what they should be doing. The, The downside of all of this is you're starting to see people rush on pharmacies or be aggressive with healthcare workers because they want certain medications that they've heard about or tests or things like that. You don't hear a whole lot about people rebelling against the idea that their movements will be controlled. What was that like for you when when that first announcement came out and they said, hey, you've got a limited amount of time to figure out where you're going to wait this out, who you're going to wait it out with? What was that like for you? Did you already understand the seriousness of this when that order came out? There's a curve that you go through. The first is somewhere between shock and disbelief. The night that it was announced, I was out at dinner. The cafes were full. People were out and it was almost like the the day before the end of the world. (laughs) People knew something was coming, but everybody was out and living it up. The next day, I think the reality of it all hit. Personally, it was a mixture of feeling like I was floating in space and wanting to make sure my family was with me. My son was in school in Lille and uh, we were trying to get him home. And we had to find a train. People were moving around because it was a very limited time. And then thinking about, but do I really want him in a train with lots of other people for two hours? Unfortunately, COVID-19 hit you in a personal way as well. Can you talk about the experience with with your husband and, and walk me through that? My husband got an acute case of the coronavirus. And I guess the first thing that I would say is that it's it's very nasty. It's it's an aggressive virus and it takes two full weeks 
in his case, to write it out. When you see all the nice little posters with smiley people who with bubbles on their hands that say, wash your hands, if that is all that people are told, they would not stay home. But if they had any idea what this looked like and what it was like for the person who suffers from it, they would all stay home and respect the rules. Just to give you a few examples, he had all the symptoms that you hear about in the news. He had chills. He had a fever that went above 104 for three days straight. He coughed so hard and so much, he couldn't speak, he couldn't eat, he couldn't drink, he couldn't sleep. And so what happens is after about five or six days of that, the person is absolutely exhausted. I think different from other things, and you know, when you look at influenza, for example, which uh, COVID is, is compared to quite a bit, there's no super sophisticated medical intervention that they have found, and there's no magic bullet to make it go away. The worst of it is behind us, and uh, he's doing much better. And I would like to take this opportunity to, to say bravo and thank you to the healthcare people who followed us very, very closely. We were lucky enough to be in a big city, and I'm really glad we didn't make the decision to go anywhere else. There's just a, a military organization that's very, very efficient around dealing with people who are in a, you know fairly advanced stages of the virus, getting them the help that they need, getting them to the hospital if they need it. I discovered, I don't know, in, in the States if you call them visio consults or teleconsults, but they've proven extremely effective and had let us at one point be in contact with a doctor hour by hour. They were just amazing. And as, as a caregiver, I would have never been able to do it without them. It must have been very scary to watch your husband get these symptoms and go through this at a time when we're all learning about this at the same time and we're all scared about what this virus does. How did you cope with that? And did you have to quarantine yourself from him? There's four of us in this family. And when we saw what was happening, in addition to being, you know, at one point really scared for, for my husband's health, we want to do anything in your power not to catch this. We're lucky that we have space. You know, the whole family was in quarantine within the apartment. The first thing the doctors tell you is to, to isolate the person. And we were lucky enough that, you know, he was in a separate bedroom with a separate bathroom. He didn't go in any other rooms of the house and he wasn't allowed to go in the kitchen. Uh, you disinfect everything. You clean everything. The sick person needs to wear a mask. And that isn't always easy because when they cough, uh, the last thing they want is something over their face. But he was a good sport about it and did, you know, he played by the rules as well and did everything he could to protect the rest of us. I think that one of the hardest things about this virus and the people that, that get it and the families that are dealing with it is that isolation. Uh, I've heard about people who are in the hospital and their children can't visit them. Even though you were in the same area and he was just in another bedroom and in another bathroom to not be able to tend to somebody and give them the type of care that you want to give them, I think would be heartbreaking in some ways. Yeah, no, it's it's really hard because the person, especially when they get this, this phase of exhaustion, and then there are moments where I think the person is truly scared. And that is where it's it was so useful to to have a healthcare professional that we could get in touch with, even if it was by Visio, that was able to reassure us and was very, very present. As for hospital care, you know, our strategy was to do everything we could for him to not have to go to the hospital. Because what happens is that, you know, they're very efficient medical professionals here and they send doctors to your home. And if they decide that they need to take a patient with them, it's only the patient who goes. And uh, once they're taken off into the healthcare system, you're entirely dependent 
on what the doctor, you know, the information that you're able to get from doctors who are very, very busy people. It sounds like the French healthcare system is responding well to this. Is it, would you would you evaluate it that way? I think they're responding as best that they can. You know, as in many other countries, there are shortages of beds and and equipment. One of the big issues here was masks that they're resolving now. There's a whole system in place where if you have symptoms, the first thing you do is you call your general practitioner. Depending on what your GP has to say, they tell you to call the equivalent of 911 and there's a special COVID line. And there you talk to a triage doctor. Depending on what comes out of that conversation, they send someone to your house to evaluate you and then decide if they need to take you to the hospital or not. Um, Cyril was taken to the hospital, but fortunately, he didn't have to stay that long. They were able to stabilize him and, and bring him back home. But once you leave the hospital, you receive a questionnaire by SMS twice a day that you fill out with, with your temperature, your, your pulse, and your oxygenation, your SpO2. So we got one of those little things you put on the end of your finger. <laughs> and a doctor calls you twice a day to see how you're doing and if they need to bring you back in. Some of the other things that they put in place in France is there's a military hospital. The first, um, the first big outbreak was near uh, Mulhouse, which is near Strasbourg in the east of France. And the hospitals were overloaded, so they opened a military hospital there. Uh, they've also taken, I don't know if you know what a TGV is, it's the train de grande vitesse, the high-speed trains here. They've outfitted trains that can take up to 30 patients at a time that are in intensive care and transport them to another part of the country where there's room in the hospitals. And then there, there are other things going on. France, it, you know, France is also the country of, of fashion and perfume. And uh, you have companies like LVMH that manufactures uh, textiles and alcohol-based products. And they have taken their factories and started making masks, making surgical protection clothing for hospital personnel. And they don't make perfume anymore. They make antiseptic gel. You still have family in the United States. How have you been able to stay in touch with them? And, and what's it like being so separated from them during this? It's hard to be separated from people that you're concerned about. My parents are 75 years old and and my greatest fear is that they will right now is that they'll go out. They live in a in a house in a fairly rural area. They're very autonomous. They can go outside, get fresh air, they things like that, and so they're not totally cooped up. But I know that they're lonely. I know that they're lonely. So we've been trying to get creative and you know, thank thank God for FaceTime. My children sing them songs and they make cakes that they show in a screen and <laughs> and paint pictures, uh, but we try and stay in touch as much as we can. It's an interesting reminder of the connection that we have and how much we need to work to bridge that connection. Even, even in this time of isolation, we still need to have togetherness. And I think that's one of the hardest things that people are trying to figure out, how to, how to walk that line. Yeah, I think there's togetherness on a family level. You know, the idea that my son would have been stuck in another city. He's 20 years old. Would he have known what to do and where to go if if he wasn't feeling well? How would we have managed that was something that really, was really, really frightening for me. And then, you know, my parents are really far away. Anything, if anything happened to them, I'm thousands of miles away. You know, France is also a country where people like to be together. When you look at what people are saying about distance working, on one hand, it's something that, you know, people envy, but they, I think there's this idea of home office and I can work in my pajamas and, <laughs> or do what I want when I want that, that was very romantic about it in the beginning. But after two weeks, there's two phenomena that are very striking. One of them is that people say, I miss my office. 
I, I miss I miss going in and seeing my team and being with the people and sharing the energy. The second thing that you see is that after getting rid of a disease here that they call réunionite, I think you'd say meeting itis in English, and going into a lot of lean and agile methods that eliminate time spent in, in meetings, meetings are back in. We need to be together. We need to listen to each other. We need to hear what's going on in everybody's world. Now, some of this sounds like insights that you've gained from your work and from your company. Can you talk a little bit about how your company has responded to clients' needs during this time and the work that you're doing? Sure. At Choose My Company, you can go choosemycompany.com. We're a platform that collects reviews from employees, interns, candidates, whether they've been recruited or not, and clients. And we help companies to improve their reputation and their work environments. Our clients right now, they're all, they're all reorganizing because distance working is the norm now. The government is supporting companies. I think we have a different constellation than you do in a country like the United States uh, with what they call a partial unemployment, where you can take groups of your employees and say that they're only going to work half time or they're not going to work at all. And the government will cover their salaries, leaving only a small difference for a company to pay so that the cash flow is preserved over, over the next couple of weeks. Companies, they're not allowed to lay anybody off right now. It's illegal to lay someone off. So people's jobs are protected. But this was a, it's a huge period of reorganization. A lot of companies were not equipped for this. One of the things we're doing is that we're launching a questionnaire called Work Anywhere. It's available free of charge. And any company that wants to use it will have full access to the results of their survey on our platform. Uh, including the benchmarks from other companies. And Work Anywhere, it's nine questions uh, to explore the experience of, of distance working. How do I feel about my work? How do I feel about my relationship with my manager and my team? And then how does this affect the link that I have with my company? Well, we have two big objectives. One is just to be useful. We don't make alcohol gel and we don't make masks, but if we can help people to get through a tough time and for teams and, and businesses to stay intact, then that is our humble contribution. And the second thing is to say in a country like France, where the employer-employee relationship, it's very, it's very controlled and it's, per, it's, it's fairly paternalistic compared to what you have in the United States and the UK, is how can we help companies to learn something from this and make the right decisions in terms of how to take it forward when the confinement is over? We've been at this for, what, a few weeks now, depending on which country you're in and wh what community you're in. And there's evidence that this distancing works and that it, it is making a big difference in places where it is happening. But there is already this separation fatigue happening. And this is a long road. And we're we're maybe still in the maybe late beginning of it. Given that you are, are somebody who has seen this close up, what is the message that you would give to people who are feeling this fatigue and are just looking for the first chance that they can get to get out and, and break out of this uh, separation. What, what lesson would you like them to draw from what you've seen? I, I give two pieces of advice. The first one is really and truly, please stay home. It's for your own safety and for the safety of your loved ones. And it's very important. The second one is, so breaking your isolation, does that necessarily have to be going out and being in large groups of people? How, how do you define that? Because I do think that technology gives us a lot of wiggle room there. We can see other people. I've already participated in, I don't know how many Zoom happy hours and uh, team meetings. And there are ways to stay together. 
even if physically we're not there, we can hear each other, we can see each other. And I think compared to other times, imagine that this had happened even 20 years ago, the isolation would be all the more acute. And, uh, and so maybe for part of it, we consider that we're lucky to have some of the things that, that we do. So air out your house, take your hour and go out and walk in the sunshine because it's very important, but keep your distances and respect the confinement. When you look to sort of a post-COVID world, what, what is your hope? Is there anything that comes out of this that you hope will last into the future? There are a few things. To go back to what you were saying about isolation and the feelings that people are having and the frustrations is it is a time to say, why do I feel that way? What's important to me in my relationships with other people? It pushes you to have lots of one-on-one conversations and to really and truly listen to other people. The second thing is... I do hope that this will push us to reevaluate the way that healthcare functions and the way that we value healthcare professionals. And if you look around the world and you see what the lack of people circulating is doing to the pollution levels, I, I do find that very interesting. And I think that there are things to, to be learned there about how we can, we can be kinder with each other, uh, value people's talents and their usefulness in society, especially for key things like teachers and and, uh, healthcare workers, uh, and then how can we be gentler with the planet. And it's perhaps a great reminder to take a moment and appreciate the connections that we have with each other. I'm grateful for our connection, and I really appreciate you taking time to speak with me today. Sure, Brian. You're welcome. Take care. Voices of COVID-19 is an attempt to document the thoughts and feelings of people who are perhaps outside the limelight to get personal reflections on how a pandemic impacts all of our lives. Please subscribe to this podcast and join us for our next episode where we'll hear from a college freshman who's not only dealing with social distancing issues, but is also dealing with issues of racism that have unfortunately been stirred up by this pandemic. If you know of someone who might make a good guest on this podcast, please send them to me at brian at truevoicecommunications.com. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and stay separate. And we'll get through this together. Mm